Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening! The Institute for Catholic Culture has a great sense of humor. They have a St. Patrick's Day party with great Irish music, great Irish dancing, and then they invite an Englishman to give a talk on St. Patrick. Clearly asking for trouble, if you ask me. <laughs> so I'm going to begin by saying, Happy St. Whitburger's Day to you. <laughs> Who is she? Well, you're going to find out, Ashley, because she's, she's going to get about th three minutes of the talk in a moment. But I would like to give, by way of allaying any sort of latent anxiety you might be suffering, suffering from at the moment, today is our son's 17th birthday, Leo Patrick Pierce, and um, we had our party for him yesterday because I'm going to be here at this party, so uh, two parties in a row. I've given up alcohol for Lent, at least I've given up alcohol for Lent when I'm not at home. My wife and children don't see me for 40 days. <laughs> but I'm going to have a day off from drinking tomorrow, but St. Joseph's Day is another matter on, on Tuesday. Actually, on, on, on Tuesday, on St. Joseph's Day, um, I will be celebrating my 30th anniversary as a Catholic. So, thank you. Yes, uh, yeah, praise be St. Joseph, and I say that's uh, something I celebrate every year for obvious reasons, but the 30th is something a little bit special. But also today, apart from being my son's 17th birthday, would have been, or still is actually, my mother's uh, birthday, and she would have been 80 were she still here. And she, her name was Margaret Patricia Pierce. Um, and just sort of, again, to continue, continue to lay the fears, my grandmother was a Margaret Kavanagh from County Galway, so um, I'm, tainted, I'm tainted by the Irish blood and I have to live with it. I also married a, a, a girl from Southern California whose mother was actually born in County Tyrone in the north of Ireland. So as my wife has always reminded me, our children are more Irish than they are English. <laughs> but before I do anything else, I would actually, before we get on to St. Patrick and eventually to St. Patrick's breastplate, that wonderful uh, prayer, hymn, I'd have a sip of Guinness. <laughs> but I want to say a little bit about St. Whitburger, because no one's heard of poor St. Whitburger. And she's in the communion of saints with St. Patrick. They're probably having a pint of celestial Guinness together as we speak. <laughs> but it tastes better up there. But she, it's a little bit later, St. Patrick. She died in 743, but uh, she was from East Anglia. And if anybody knows anything about me, uh, East Anglia is my shire. That's where I spent my childhood, and then I moved to London. And then when I was recovering from London, um, 
I moved back to East Anglia. So East Anglia's three, sh three shires, Essex, the land of the East Saxons in the south, Suffolk, the land of the South Folk in the north, uh, north of Essex, and then the North Folk, the land of the Norfolk, the land of the North Folk in the north. And that's why I spent uh, the, my last eight years in England before coming here. That's home for me, spiritually, apart from the hearth and home I have with my family. So St. Whitburg is actually from Norfolk, from a place called Deerham, just outside Norwich. She died in 743. She was a religious sister. But she was also a princess, a Saxon princess. And she was buried in Ely Abbey, which is in Cambridgeshire. And 55 years after she died, they disinterred her body and to find she was incorrupt. So there's already this uh, cult around her holiness, but of course it really took off after that. And she was moved from Ely Abbey to her um, birthplace in Dirham and buried there. Everything was good. Lots of pilgrimages. Uh, the, 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 the cult around her was such that there were you know, thousands of pilgrims going there. So the Bishop of Ely thought he's losing out on money. So in 974 AD, he paid some of his minions to go to Deerham and get the local Deerham people drunk. And while they were drunk, they stole St. Wickburger's body and took it back to Ely. Now the people of Deerham, when they discovered the trick, caught up uh, the uh, Bishop of Ely's men and there was a, a battle over the, uh, over the relics. It's not just the Irish that have the gift of the blinder, you know. You know, you know this? And there's this battle over, over the relics. But anyway, the Bishop really prevailed, so St. Whitburger was buried in, in Ely Abbey. But the saint, if you like, gave her own testimony as to where, what side she was on in this debate because when the people of Deerham returned home, they found that the site where her tomb was had sprung a spring, as in Lourdes. And that holy well is still uh, a spring to this day, obviously uh, well over a thousand years later. So that's at Whitburg. I thought, you know, why should she, you know, Saint the great St. Patrick, being a, a, a saint and holy, is not going to mind sharing the billing. But the angriest poem I ever wrote as a Catholic is the early days of my Catholicism before I became holy. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I was raised in England in the 70s and that's when the IRA were having their bombing campaigns and in London the bombs were being planted in pubs and in underground stations and in cars and in, in streets so I grew up with that <coughs> so this was this is a element of anger here in this poem for which I'm sort of apologizing but it's also against the English as well as against a certain type of Irishman the poem is called The Bishop and the Virgin, and it's not a joke. The bishop rose in the west, the most famous Celt of all, and the faith devoutly was confessed from Cork to Donegal. But the virgin sank in the east, though risen from the fall, and though all of England knows her least, 
She is worthier than them all. Patrick preached on Irish sod, the shamrock one in three. He turned the pagan gales to God, till they all were one in thee. Whitburger, princess pure and saint, daughter of a Saxon rex, East Anglian holy without taint, iconic image of her sex. Patrick's day is celebrated in manners quite obscene by men whose faith is mutilated in 40 shades of green. Whitburger's day is now forgotten as indeed is she, by England turned rancid and rotten, footloose, fancy, and unfree. As Patrick is remembered by policemen in New York, and policemen are dismembered by rebels from Dundalk, I remember England, merry, good, and free. And March 17th is Whitburger's Day to me. Thank you. But it's also very much St. Patrick's Day, as I hope I've already said. Imagine, by the way, my mother, whose mother was Irish, okay, Kavanagh from, God, from uh, Galway, when I phoned her up on St. Patrick's Day back in 2002, I said, happy birthday, mum, your grandmother, because her grandson was born. So St. Patrick's very special to us for all sorts of reasons. So I'd say, you know about St. Patrick's, so I'm not going to say too much about him, right? He's 5th century, so 400 AD. And one thing I would say, you hear about the Irish and the, the gift of the gab, or the blarney, but there's something healthy about legends. And I'm reminded of the words of Oscar Wilde. Now, Oscar Wilde, someone said to Oscar Wilde, is it true, Oscar, that you walked down the strand with a lily in your hand? And Wilde responded, to have done it was nothing. But to make people believe you had done it was everything. So the point is that the, the, the people naturally, and as they should, tell stories about great men, and including great holy men. And it's a bit like a caricature, because the kernel of the story, the seed of the story, is true. In other words, the soil is truth. It's a bit like a caricature. So if you get a good caricaturist, they will accentuate the natural features. So the person is instantly recognizable as that particular person. But of course their nose isn't really that long. The ears aren't really that small or big. Um, but there's something about the accentuation which, if you like, accentuates the truth at the heart. So so it is with St. Patrick and the various legends around him. Now, you know, if you ask any zoologist, they will tell you there's never been snakes in Ireland. So, uh, and... I haven't looked at the evidence, and I'm not, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pass judgment. But it's been suggested, regardless of whether there were literal snakes in Ireland that were expelled by St. Patrick, that the snakes that were expelled by St. Patrick were the pagans, 
were the Druids. Because when St. Patrick arrived in Ireland, um, the Druids were still a very powerful force in Ireland. And of course, you know, we do know from a Christian typology that the serpent is a symbol for the satanic and for the demonic. So it makes sense. And the idea about his staff turning into a living tree. Again, he's the staff of the shepherd of the bishop did turn into the living tree. The fact that we're talking now, 1600 years later, about St. Patrick and the Catholic faith and its connection with Ireland proves how alive that tree is. So I'm not saying these things didn't happen literally, but I am saying that regardless whether they happen literally, literarily, and metaphorically, they speak the truth. And of course, I'm trying to resist saying that St. Patrick was an Englishman. I, as you said, that Oscar Wilde also said, I can resist everything except temptation. <laughs> I obviously couldn't resist that particular temptation. Except, some people said he was. In fact, he wasn't. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't an English for a very simple reason. He came from what is now, what least most scholars think, what is now Northeast England, Cumbria, the Lake District, that sort of area on the coast. But England means Angleland the land of the Angles. And St. Patrick was living before the Angles arrived in England. So there was no Angle land. It was, it was part of the Roman Empire. Right at the final days of the Roman Empire. He was a Romano-Celt. Um, Celtic, even though he was born in what is now England. So, you know, it's a... Uh, it would be rather incorrect to me to say he was an Englishman, because there were no Englishmen. They, England did not exist when St. Patrick was around. And uh, in order to do some, I, I thought I'd do some really heavy research for this talk, so I spent about five minutes on Google. <laughs> about, some, um, about St. Patrick's breastplate. I did find some interesting things, actually, which I thought were worth, worth commenting on before we get to the poem, because I do want to get to uh, the poem. That, that, that there's a very famous hymn, as I'm sure you know, um, called I Bind Unto Myself Today, which is based upon uh, St. Patrick's Breastplate. This was um, uh, composed or written, the, the words of it were written by Cecil Francis Alexander, who was a, a Protestant Irish person, a lady. Best known other of her hymns which you might know all Things Bright and Beautiful. Do we know that one? Yeah. You better say yes, because if you don't know it, I'm going to sing it. <laughs> you won't want that. They won't want, you wouldn't want that, believe me. There's a green hill far away. We know that one? No, everyone's, everyone's saying, staying silent now. You're hoping I'm going to inflict my voice upon you. It's not going to happen. And the Christmas Carol, Once in Royal David City. Yes. Now, see, she wrote those as well as I bind unto myself today, which is uh, obviously based upon St. Patrick's Breastplate. But what's interesting about her, because I think oh, she's a Protestant, actually she was very influenced by John Keeble. 
And John Keeble was one of the leaders of the Oxford movement, and the principal leader of which was blessed John Henry Newman. So she was a, an Anglican, but she was what might be called high church or Anglo-Catholic, which might explain perhaps, possibly, her interest in St. Patrick. And the only other thing I want to say about that before moving on to the poem is, um, who here has heard of the, uh, the composer Arvo Pert? Okay, not as many as should. He's probably the greatest living classical music composer. Uh, he's Estonian, uh, and he's a convert to Christianity. He was raised under the Soviet occupation of Estonia. He's now an Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Christian. But he's also done a musical setting of St. Uh, Patrick's Breastplate. And I haven't heard it, I must confess, but I only discovered this on Google the other day. But I know it must be true because it's on Google, so... I'm gonna I'm gonna check out the, I'm gonna, gonna check out the music because Arvo Pett's one of my favourite composers. So I want to see what he does with St. Patrick. And the only other aspect of St. Patrick I want to mention before we get on to the poem uh, is St. Patrick's Purgatory. Um, and of course, this is a, 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 a famous pilgrimage that goes right back to the dawn of Christendom, possibly the time of St. Patrick, but certainly right back to the Dark Ages. Many miracles that are, that are uh, uh, attributed to people that go on that pilgrimage, and people have gone on that pilgrimage from all over Christendom, from all over Europe. So I did want to mention that, and I've actually discovered a book um, called St. Patrick's Purgatory by Shane Leslie. And if any of you have read my book, Literary Converts, there's Shane Leslie's one of those literary converts. He's Irish Protestant who converted to Catholicism. He wrote this book of St. Pa Patrick's Purgatory, and it's so well written and so charming that um, I'm hoping that uh, I'm, I'm currently director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute in Colorado. And we're launching a new series uh, called Faith and Culture Classics, right up the alley for the Institute for Catholic Culture. And the first two titles will be um, Sir Thomas More's Dialogue of Comfort and a novel by Robert Hugh Benson, who some of you might know, for Lord of the World and um, uh, Come Rat, Come Rope. But he, what he considered his, fa his, his, his best novel to be Richard Raynor's Solitary, a novel set in 15th century England, so Catholic England. I'm gonna publish that. But I think after that, I'm gonna see if I'm gonna persuade my colleagues to let me publish St. Patrick's Purgatory by Shane Leslie, because it's marvelous and it's almost unheard of now, published in 1917. Okay, but now I want to get to this prayer, or hymn, or poem, because I think it's all three, and you all have a copy, so perhaps we can follow it now. And the fact that something can be called a poem, even when it's in translation, um, should make us realize how beautiful it must be in the original uh, Gaelic. Um, because, you know, I say I, I, I'm always quoting T.S. Eliot's line, that between the potency and the existence falls the shadow. In other words, between the power of the original, uh, or the power of the idea, and the existence of the thing, a shadow falls. And that's especially true of translation. Gerald Manny Hopkins, by the way, and I'm going to be giving a lecture on Hopkins later in the year for um, the ICC, um, is untranslatable. If I, ever, if I ever speak abroad and say, how many people have read Chesterton? Hands will go up. How many people have read Belloc? Hands will come up. Oh, let's do it here. How many people have read Chesterton? How many people have read Belloc? How many people have read C.S. Lewis? 
That's the winner, I think. How many people have read J.R.R. Tolkien? Um, yeah, close. I'm going to do the same thing in Chile or Spain or Italy. And then I ask, how many people have read Gerard Manny Hopkins? How many people have read Gerard Manny Hopkins? Okay, quite a few here. Even in a very learned company, country, uh, company, I mean, in those countries, very few, and those that put their hand up are probably actually English language, first language, just happen to be living there. Because Hopkins is so rich, he's untranslatable. So the fact that this is so beautiful as a translation makes us imagine how beautiful it must be in the original. I don't speak Gaelic, but it's almost worth learning Gaelic so we can visit texts like this in the original language. So let's go through it. I arise today. Now that makes us think, and of course it's repeated, right? It's a, it's a refrain. That he's a man. He's going to get out of bed. He's going to take on the devil which would make him a heretic. Because Pelagius, who was around not much later than this, taught that you can get to heaven through the power of your own will, through the triumph of your own will. You just listen to what Jesus says and do it, and that's all you need to do. Which means, of course, you don't need the sacraments. You don't need grace, you don't need the church. You just listen to the word. Jesus says do something, you use the power of your will to do it and you get to heaven. It's a heresy. Well, St. Patrick is not a heretic. I arise today through a mighty strength. And that mighty strength is not St. Patrick's mighty strength. It's the invocation of the Trinity. So he rises in mighty strength because he invokes the mighty strength of Almighty God in the Trinity. He does it through belief in the threeness and through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. So the Trinity here is being depicted as the creator of creation, the creator of everything else. Of course, only a fool would attempt to arise today without invoking that strength. And the other thing about this poem is it's hierarchical. It begins at the top and, if you like, descends. So it begins with the Trinity. Now we get to Christ. Now, of course, Christ is the second person of the Trinity, so he's not descending in terms of the level of divinity here. But, of course, the Trinity predates the Incarnation, okay? Um, so I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. Here we have salvation history in four lines. St. Patrick is arising today through the power of salvation history, which is rooted to the incarnation. And notice, by the way, it's not and, it's with. Through the strength of Christ's birth, with his baptism. Through the strength of his crucifixion, with his burial. 
for the strength of his resurrection with his ascension. These things go hand in hand. They're not to be separated. There is no resurrection without the crucifixion. And then it finishes through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. And this is not uh, Christ's descent into hell following his crucifixion because this is obviously being given to us in terms of chronology, okay? The life of Christ from his birth to the second coming through the, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. So Patrick rises in the morning and causes us to do the same thing um, by invoking the power of Christ's crucifixion and the whole of salvation history that is encapsulated and incorporated into his mystical body, the church. Christ's life, death, and resurrection as strength. And of course, that strength, as we see right at the beginning, is connected to grace. That without that supernatural strength, without that supernatural grace, we can do nothing. There's no getting to heaven through the triumph of our own will. If you like, we rise today by beginning on our knees. And a, fa and a favorite, favorite rock song line of mine, which I may have quoted when I was here last time because I keep quoting it, is from the Irish group U2. Seems appropriate maybe to mention U2 on St. Patrick's Day. Um, and, and the line, if you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. If you want to reach up high, you begin by going low. You begin with humility. Through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom, now, doom is a very gloom-laden, doom and gloom, right? They go together, uh, the, the trump of doom. And we think of doom in a negative sense. But actually, it doesn't mean that. It just means destiny or providence or the way things are, the way things are going to be. Of course, that can be bad, but it needn't be bad. So the judgment of doom is not necessarily a bad thing. But what... St. Patrick's doing here, as all great Christian theologians and philosophers and uh, writers do, is keep bringing us back to that memento mori, that reminder of death. Because the judgment of doom, of course, doesn't happen just at one point in history, presumably, or thousands and thousands of years in the future. So we can sort of forget about it. The end of the world happens for all of us pretty soon. Today, possibly. But three score years and ten is the allotted time of man. Now we've, strength, we've extended that a bit now, so let's call it four score years. What's ten years between here and eternity? The point is we're all going to die. And we're all going to die once. It's a great egalitarianism, very equal. The rich and the poor all die once. And when they die, that's when the judgment of doom comes for them. Not at the end of the world, but at the end of their world. And the four last things, of course, are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. 
Because at that judgment of doom, the doom will be heaven or hell. If you get into purgatory, you're, being, you're going to heaven. It's a one-way street. So Sir Patrick here reminds us, reminds his own contemporaries, the people he's teaching, the people he's preaching to, that the incarnation for each of them is intensely personal. It's through the strength of Christ's life, death and resurrection, and his ascension into death, that they can actually get the right judgment at doom. Without it, they can't. So then we're coming down the hierarchies. We've now moved from the divine, from the tri Holy Trinity and the incarnation, to I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim. Again, what, what is he also being risen, being, being risen up by? Not just the grace of God, but by the communion of saints, by the prayers of angels. the strength of their love which causes them to pray for him. In the obedience of angels, in the service of angels, and again, from a Christian perspective, love, the strength of love is always in service. We are meant to be servants of the servants of God. In the hope of the resurrection to meet with reward. In the prayers of patriarchs. So we've now moved from the angelic host to the human aspect of the communion of saints. In the prayers of patriarchs. In the predictions of prophets. So the Old Testament, if you like. The old law. In the preaching of apostles. In the faith of confessors. In the innocence of holy virgins in the deeds of righteous men. So here we see the invocation that he rises with the strength that he receives from the communion of saints. And this is, of course, the church triumphant. And we're sort of, in these days, we're sort of discouraged from using phrases like the church triumphant or the church suffering or the church militant. But this is what the church is. Now somehow it's triumphalist to talk about saints in heaven. If so, let's be triumphalist. The church triumphant is the church victorious. It's the church of St. Patrick. The church of the saints who are not divorced from us. They're in communion with us. We are meant to rise every morning through the strength of their prayers. We're meant to ask every morning for the strength of their prayers. And we are the church militant. As we see, this, 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 this prayer, this poem carries on because militant is, again, from the Latin, miles soldiers. We are the warrior church because it's here where the battlefield is. There's no battlefield in heaven. There's no battlefield in hell. There's no battlefield in purgatory. Heaven is where the victory has been won. Purgatory is a place of healing. 
Hell is a place where all is lost. This is where the battle for eternal life and death takes place. We are soldiers for Christ, and whether we like it or not, by the way, because if we're cowards and run away from the fight, it doesn't mean we're not soldiers, it just means we're bad soldiers. And then he moves from that, from the communion of saints, the church triumphant. I arise today through the strength of heaven. And here, I, again, I don't speak Gaelic, and I haven't looked at the original text, other translations, but here, look at the context. I don't think he's talk, talking about the same heaven he's been speaking about in the, in, in, in the, in the previous part. This is heaven as in the heavens. Right, the sky, the stars. Because he's now talking about creation. I rise today through the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the speed of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, the firmness of rock. What does this remind some of us of? I'm looking at the clock, but I have no idea when I started. I couldn't keep saying that. But they, they were like, whenever I say that, they, they hold up a sign at the back there. So I've got some. Anybody? Yes. Exactly. Yes. St. Francis of Assisi's Canticle of the Sun is very similar to this. And also from Scripture, maybe. Old Testament, any biblical scholars here, of which I am not one. Daniel, well done. The song of Daniel, where Daniel calls the mountains and the hills to, to, to pray to the Lord. St. Francis does the same thing. St. Patrick does the same thing. Great poets do the same thing. One of my favorite poems of all, which you can read tonight if you buy the book for $25 from the book table over there. <laughs> of course, you could be mean and... Google it, I suppose, but it won't be leather bound. Thank you, that worked. See, it worked. I know how long I've got now. <laughs> um, but Samuel Taylor Coleridge is in Switzerland before dawn, and he sees the light change, and he sees Mont Blanc, which I think is the highest mountain in the, in the Swiss Alps. And he sees it change color as the, as the sun rises and the, and, and, the, and the light spreads across the sky. And he sees the mountain, he sees the trees, he sees the sky, he sees the sun. All is unified as a choir of praise to God. He says they are crying the word God. And again, this is profoundly, and Gerald Manny Hopkins, who I've mentioned several times already, he says in one of his poems, God's Grandeur, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will shine out like shook foil. In other words, we are meant to see the beauty of creation and see it as a work of art and be moved by that work of art to lift ourselves in praise to God. And the lifting up of the mind and the heart to God is a definition of prayer. Well, sunrises and sunsets and, this, and, and the 
leaves of trees washed in sunlight are meant to raise up our hearts and minds to God. They're meant to cause prayer. So St. Patrick gets it right. He does rise in the morning through the strength of the heavens, through the strength of the sun, through the radiance of the moon. Fire, lightning, wind, sea, earth, rock, all of those things point to God. But you'll notice on a, shall we say, a literary level here, it's also that these natural things, these created things, are themselves metaphors for divine things, for divine attributes. So there's the strength of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, splendor of fire, speed, swiftness, depth, stability, firmness. So St. Patrick's also giving us, if you like, creation as a metaphor for God. Not just something that points towards God, because it's God's creation, but something that shines forth, in some sense, the attributes of who God is. So let's move on. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me. So he's rising today through God's strength, not his, to pilot him, God's might to uphold me, to sustain him, God's wisdom to guide me. And look at these lines. God's eye to look before me. Now he's not actually saying, I want to see with God's eyes. He's actually saying, I want God to see through my eyes. It's almost as if he's willingly desiring to be possessed. Of course, not in demonic sense, but in divine sense. That everything he does is God's. Everything he sees is God's. He wants to be God's eye that sees through his eyes. God's ear to hear me. God's word to speak for me. His tongue to serve the Lord. God's hand to guard me. God's shield to protect me. God's host to save me. Now, if you read modernist nonsense on the early church, now we'll talk about St. Patrick, for instance. Well, you know, he came from a tribal society. This is all invoking the chieftains, and that's what he's talking about. Shields and hosts, you know, um, you know armies to save him, because he came from a, a very sort of tribal culture. No. He is saying that he needs God's shield to protect him. That this is the church militant. And he's at war. He's at war against an enemy, he mentions there, from temptation of vices, from snares of devils, from everyone who shall w wish me ill, afar and near. He needs God's shield to protect him from that evil. He needs God's host. In other words, he needs the communion of saints to fight with him. He needs his guardian angel to fight with him. So from God's eye sees, instead of I see through God's eye, God's ear hears rather than I hear, God's word speaks rather than I speak, 
all grace first. And God's host, as we said before, are the church triumphant, or is the church triumphant. We are the church militant. We are those that are at war, that need the shield and the army. But this idea of grace being first, now my favorite prayer might be the Angelus. And the reason for that is it seems to be the complete encapsulation of our relationship with God. So it begins with um, uh, <laughs> the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. So it begins with something happening to us. Mary, of course, here is the image of the perfect Christian. But she is offered a gift. The angel of the Lord declares unto Mary. In other words, a grace is offered to her, which she can refuse. But she doesn't. So as with us, the angel of the Lord declares unto us, how do we respond? We're meant to respond to grace, the way St. Patrick does, and the way the Blessed Virgin does. Behold the handmaid of the Lord be it done unto me according to thy word. And only then, only then, does the word become flesh and dwell among us. And then he moves on. I summon today all these powers between me and those evils, that the Trinity, Christ himself, the incarnate Son of God, the communion of angels and saints to fight for him against the powers of darkness. I summon today all these powers between me and those evils against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul. And now he might start, he starts talking about witches and wizards, and I think, well, you know, it's a bit wacky, a bit new agey, a bit. Maybe okay for them, but not for now. But let's look at this a bit more closely. Okay, so every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul. So first of all, every power that lacks mercy, in other words, that does not come from God, that will cease to separate me or make an, a war between my body and my soul. To put my body at war with my soul rather than the two being one against incantations of false prophets. And certainly in our age, the, the spirit of modernism in wider society and within the church are the false prophets, those that believe we're progressing into a golden age in the future against the evidence of all of history and the senses. Or the false prophets of pessimism, all is lost. So one of the things in this book of St. Patrick's Purgatory I've just read is how St. Kieran um, and his monks uh, at uh, Patrick, when the Vikings arrive, and they're, most of them are old men, and they're certainly they're, they're defenseless, and they see the Vikings coming across, say, you know, rowing across from the mainland to the island, um, singing their pagan bloodthirsty war songs and the, the Vikings kill them all one by one 
and uh, they are puzzled by how glad and happy these men are. They're not converted by it, but sadistically they don't want St. Kieran to die as happily as the rest of them. So they see an image of the crucifix and St. Kieran and his last companion are nailed to the door of the church and left to die. The whole community of monks destroyed by the power of paganism. It's all over. And yet, of course, it rose from the dead. Paganism died for all its brute force and power and pride and pomp. And Christianity continues to rise from the dead. The Soviet Union, 1917 to 1989, 72 years where Christianity was stamped out so that when in 1989 communism collapsed, nobody could remember when Russia was a Christian country. Surely, if no one can even remember it, tradition's been broken, it's all over. And yet the Orthodox Church now is, is, is growing miraculously. Now to, select, no, to commemorate the centenary of the death, uh, the murder of the, the Russian royal family, several hundred thousand Christian believers stayed up all night for three hour service, I think from midnight to 3 a.m., which was the, date, the time when the, the royal family were assassinated. And after that three-hour service, they walked, I think, something like 12 miles to the actual place of the execution where that another service was held. Several hundred thousand people led by the patriarchs, by the, the archbishops. Now, surely, every, everybody would tell you it's dead now. But as Chesterton said, that Christianity worships a God that knew his way out of the grave against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry. Mention the heresy of modernism. Pagandom, in a rather pathetic sense, is making a comeback with the so-called New Age. Although I think that the uh, original pagans are probably turning in their grave, but that's another matter. The craft of idolatry, American Idol. The cult of celebrity, where people are famous because, well, they're famous. And the worship of gadgets. Most of us spend much more time with our gadgets than we do with our God. The craft of idolatry. Against spells of witches and smiths and wizards. Again, surely that's nothing to do with us. There's a wonderful poem by G.K. Chesterton about his wife, who was a practicing Anglican at this time. They both became Catholics later. Um, and when her brother, when his brother-in-law, when his wife's brother committed suicide, she was so distressed and distraught, she consulted spiritualists. And uh, there was at one point, he saw his wife gazing into a crystal ball. And Chesterton wrote a poem called The Crystal, which is one of his most powerful poems. You know, saying, you know, what have you, you know, child of God, to do with these, this demonic uh, demi-world? 
So they're still around. <laughs> they might not call themselves wizards or witches, or some of them do these days. Against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Again, St. Thomas Aquinas told you the difference between scientia, which is good knowledge, and curiositas, which is knowing things that would be better not, better if we didn't know. The knowledge of certain evils. Knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that they may come to me that, that, that there may come to me an abundance of reward. So he finishes with protect me from physical harm. And again, the hierarchy continues, right? He begins with spiritual harm, with the demonic. And lower down is also protect me from physical harm. And then we get this wonderful prayer at the end. Which, quite frankly, rather than comment upon, because I think all comment on this will be superfluous, this is where he states at the end, basically, that Christ himself is the breastplate. St. Patrick's breastplate is Jesus Christ. And I would like to finish, if I may, not by commenting upon this, but by reading the last lines of uh, the, the breastplate of St. Patrick as a prayer to conclude. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Patrick. St. Whitberger. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.